0: Thank You, Lord God, that fires may threaten our homes, sickness may threaten our bodies, challenges may face us, but Your goodness will never run out. You will always be with us through the storms, through the fires, whatever we may face, Lord God. You are our defender, You're our rock, You're our God, You're the one that we lean upon. We thank You, we wanna worship You today. Our hearts are open, our ears are ready to hear. Please speak to us through your mighty word. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. May take a seat. Well, it's great to be here. I am terrible with names. And during that welcome time, I just met another Anna. So welcome, Anna. I thought you're going to be the one person in this whole church that I meet for the first time. And don't forget your name. Well, it's so exciting to be only three days out from Christmas and probably as with most of you, we set up our Christmas tree at the beginning of December. And this was the first year where I had two little helpers to help me. You can put the photo on the screen of us setting up our Christmas tree. And my eldest son, who's three, he... ..who's named Hunter, every single time that I would hang an ornament on the tree, he felt the need to move it to a different location. Well, my youngest son, Judah, he didn't move the ornaments, he just removed them and felt the need to disseminate them across the house. So I found baubles on my pillow and candy canes in the bathroom and ornaments in the pantry. But Hunter, as um, I was hanging up things on the tree and he was moving them around, he came upon this piece of craft that I had made at a women's event many years ago. And we had kind of taken apart pegs and glued them together and spray painted them white. And so I'd made this craft and I'd hung it on the tree alongside all of my son's craft. And... They had made craft at daycare and at Christmas, so we'd hung that on the tree and there was my craft alongside. Anyway, Hunter is moving things around, gets to this snowflake and he says, oh, mummy, this doesn't belong here. I said, oh, where does it belong? He said, in the bin. (laughs) Kids got taste. So then he proceeded to go and take the snowflake and put it in the bin, which probably was where it belonged, but... Anyway, we always do a lot of preparation before Christmas. There's always a big anticipation for what is to come. But we aren't the only ones who are preparing for Christmas. God was preparing for the very first Christmas before the world began. Now, right at the beginning of time, in the very creation story... Even back then, God was preparing for Christmas. Now, I used a whiteboard a few weeks ago, and I loved it so much that I'm just doing it at the beginning for the talk. So here you have the very beginning in creation, when God made Adam and Eve. And as many of you remember, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And before he sent them out of the garden, God said to Eve, "'You will have an offspring who will crush the serpent's head.'" What God was saying to Adam and Eve was that one day they were going to have some offspring who would crush evil once and for good, who would defeat Satan and overcome evil with good. He made a promise that one day someone was coming. Now, if you jump ahead then into Genesis, later in Genesis, God also made some promises to Abraham. Abraham. And what he said to Abraham was, you and your descendants are going to bless all the nations of the earth. Every nation will be blessed through you. Once again, God is making a promise that someone is going to come who will through him will bless all the nations. Then you jump ahead to 2 Samuel, where all the promises are made to King David. Didn't do a practice of my pictures. Promises were made to King David. Now, there were lots of promises which were made to King David during his reign and rule. But God also made a promise to David that there was going to be a descendant of David whose rule would never come to an end. His kingdom would go on forever. So once again, God is making a promise that someone is coming. It's going to be an eternal king, a rule who will not come to an end. If you jump further again then into the Old Testament, you get to the book of Micah. And here there's a promise made through the prophet Micah that there's going to be someone who is coming who's from ancient of days, who comes from old, who comes from the past. And he's going to be a shepherd and his greatness is going to extend to the end of the nations. Here we have a shepherd, a promise that someone is coming who will rescue his people, who will bring them peace and security once and for all. And then you jump to the very last book of the Bible, Malachi. And here in the very last chapter of Malachi, there is a promise that there's going to be a messenger who comes before the Lord. The promise says, the the prophet Malachi says, See, I will send my messenger before you who will prepare the way for the Lord. Not only is someone coming, but there's a messenger coming before him to prepare the people for his coming. So the Lord's people were ready and waiting. They were waiting for someone to come as they got defeated by armies and peoples, as they got chucked out of the land of Israel and the promised land, as the Egyptians were attacking them, they had this promise that one day someone would come. One day a king would come to rescue them once and for all. One day there would be a shepherd who would come to look after them. One day an offspring of Abraham would come who would crush Satan's head and defeat evil once and for all. All these promises, dozens, if not hundreds, are found throughout the Old Testament, all pointing towards someone coming. But after all these words of prophecy to the God's people, all this anticipation, expectation, and hope, then there was silence. For four hundred years, there were no new prophets since the prophet of Malachi. God's people heard nothing. But silence. They must have been wondering Is God still going to fulfill his promise? Is God's word true? Is this one that he has spoken about, this offspring of Abraham and David and Eve, is he actually going to come and lead our people? Where is God? Because he doesn't seem very close. We had prophecy after prophecy and promise and appearance of angels again and again and again, but now silence. 400 years of silence but then we get to the book of Luke and what's going to happen is that someone is going to come. God is going to come to earth but he's not going to come as a king. He's not going to come as an army commander. He's not going to come in a triumphant procession from heaven. He's going to come as a baby. So I want to open up the book of Luke with you today. And Luke tells us from the very beginning why he has written this book. If you put it on the screens, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, this is what Luke writes. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word." With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke is very quick to point out at the beginning of this passage that this is a true story about Jesus. This is not fake news. Luke talks about eyewitnesses. He talks about carefully investigating the things that have gone on. He wants to present an orderly account to Theophilus. Lots of people think that Christianity is based on blind faith. I've had a friend say to me, I wish that I could have the faith that you have. But Luke isn't talking about a fantasy, he's not talking about a made up story. He has spoken to eyewitnesses, people who lived when Jesus lived. He was there. He walked alongside with him. He was there during the ministry of Jesus. And then he writes the book. And if it was wrong, the people who were there would have rebuked him. I was reading in an article this week, I was reading it out to my husband Josh from The Guardian, and what this article, newspaper article said, a secular newspaper said, that there is no disagreement among ancient historians that Jesus of Nazareth lived. Whether they were Buddhist or Muslim or atheist, the evidence is so strong that Jesus walked on this earth, there is no debate. Now where there is a debate is whether he rose from the dead, but there was no debate that this was a true story that Jesus of Nazareth did live. Luke is at pains to talk about real people. Elizabeth, the son of Aaron, and her husband, Zechariah. Real people in the time of Herod, king of Judea. He wants us to know that this story is true. That our faith is built on layers and layers of knowledge and truth about an historical account of Jesus. So why does Luke want to put together this orderly account? Well, he tells us in verse 4. He says, So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke wants us to have certainty. He wants us to be sure about what we believe. Now, one of the really interesting things is that he chose this word certainty Now I'm going to teach you a Greek word today, and it's the only Greek word that I know. (laughs) So I'm going to get you to repeat it after me. I don't know if Sam's here. She actually studied Greek and got a HD, but yes, she's nodding at me. Okay, so the Greek word for certainty is asphalene. Do you want to repeat it after me? Ready? I'll say it first. Asphalene. Now you. Now, the reason this is so interesting that Luke chose that word is because directly translated, asphalene actually means safety and security, firmness, reliability. He uses it again in Acts. um, Acts 5.23. When the the apostles had escaped from jail, the jailers came to look for them. And they said in Acts 5.23, we found the jail securely, asphalene, locked with the guards standing at the door, and when we opened them, we found no one inside. It's also referred to in 1 Thessalonians, but there it's referred to as peace and security, peace and asphalene. So why did Luke choose to use this word? What Luke is saying is that he wants our faith to be so locked down, so secure, so bolted on that it's in the very essence of we are, of who we are, that it doesn't matter what storm comes along, it doesn't matter what challenges are ahead, it doesn't matter what other people are saying, you are so secure and firm and you know what you believe that you cannot be shaken. See, sometimes we have general ideas about things and they're like clouds in the sky. We have general images of God or what we believe. But the problem with clouds is that they just float away. What Luke wants us to have is he wants us to have certainty. He wants us to have asphalene. He wants our faith to be like a mountain that's immovable. Because the thing is, there's going to be a point in time where we will need to have certainty. People are going to question us. People who are smarter and more influential and more powerful and wealthier are going to ask us why we would believe in this Christian thing. And if our faith is just a random vague cloud in the sky, it's going to easily float away. We need to have faith like an immovable mountain because there's going to be challenges ahead. There's going to be times where we're going to question, God, what are you doing? I don't understand why I'm in this situation. And we need to know that we know that we know what we believe. We need to have certainty in our faith because people will question us and situations in life will come upon us. And if we don't know the truth, if we don't have certainty where we can say, no, God said, that he will never leave me or depart, leave me. God said that he is with me. God said that he has a plan and a purpose for me. Then we will be like that cloud that just drifts away. Luke wants us to have certainty so we can be firm in our faith, no matter what we face. So how does Luke bring us this certainty? Well, he tells us the story of Jesus. In verse 5, let me read it with you. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they were righteous before the Lord. They'd done everything right before him, but they could not have a child. They were barren. So then by chance, Zechariah, who is a priest, gets chosen by lot, or as Robert Ferguson would say, by a God incidence, to go into the temple. He's the one chosen that day to go in. He goes into the temple, and beside the incense, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And what does he say? The angel of the Lord said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now we here in 2019 read that passage and we think, Elijah, what? Parents being turned to the hearts of the Lord? What does that even mean? But for Zechariah, these words had deep significance. If I was to say to you, all I want for Christmas is you, you may start getting images of Mariah Carey dancing around in a Christmas suit because those words are more than just words. They have meaning, they have significance. Now for Zechariah, he was a priest in the temple and he would have known the Old Testament. He would have known these prophecies that were made about the Messiah. So when Zechariah heard what the angel had to say, he would have known that that angel is quoting from Malachi. See, the very last thing that God's people had heard from him before this 400 years of silence was from the prophet of Malachi in the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And here, this is what it says. This is what Malachi says. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total desperation. So when Zechariah has heard this prophecy from the angel, he immediately knows what he is talking about. My hunch is that Zechariah would have been stoked to just be given a son. But the angel is saying, not only am I giving you the son that you have longed your whole life for and prayed so desperately for but he's going to be part of God's great plan of redemption. He's going to be the one who opens up the door for the Messiah, who prepares the hearts of God's people to respond to him. This is incredible news that what has been spoken about for centuries, again and again by the Lord, the one they've been waiting for is coming in Zechariah. Your own son is going to open the door for him. He's going to be the one who will be the messenger that Malachi was prophesying about. This is incredible. So how does Zechariah respond? He responds with doubt. He says in verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah should have been weeping with tears of joy. He should have been dancing and singing and rejoicing of God's goodness and faithfulness. But instead, he responds with doubt. He says, I'm old. My wife is old. How can I be sure of this? See, Zechariah was more focused on trying to find out certainty around the how rather than trusting in his certainty of the who. He said, how shall I be sure of this? And he had forgotten the God that he served. He was a priest. He knew Israel's history. He knew that God at the beginning of time was hovering over the waters. And then by the power of his word, he spoke and the whole world came to be. He knew that this was the God who brought manna from heaven to feed his people as they were wandering in the desert. He knew that this was the God who, when the Israelites came to the shore of the Red Sea, he parted that Red Sea and they walked through in dry land. He knew that this was the God who, by getting just a small band of people to walk around a city and sing songs of praise, he made that city fall. In fact, this was the God who, after Abraham and Sarah for years and decades had prayed for a child and questioned whether God was going to give them what he had promised, they bore a son called Isaac. How could Zechariah say, how can I be sure? Because he'd forgotten about the who and was focused on the how. He'd forgotten the God that he served. He'd forgotten that nothing is impossible for God. He wanted to know the mechanics he wanted to know how he was going to get there. And don't we so often fall into that trap? We ask, how can I be sure that God's going to look after me? How can I be sure that he'll get me through this? How can I be sure that he is better than this sin that's tempting me at the moment? That's when we need the certainty of who we serve. Because God doesn't always give us the certainty of the how in our circumstances but he does give us certainty of who he is. And if we're going to be people who are riding against the tide, fighting against the pressure from this world to choose to say to keep ourselves pure until marriage, if we're going to be people who choose to be upright at work when everyone else is doing the wrong thing, if we're going to be people who walk through sickness and financial hardship with faith and rejoicing, we need to remember who we are. Because we don't have the certainty of how God's going to get us there. But we do have the certainty of who he is. And Zechariah missed out. Because when he could have been dancing, he just had doubt. When he could have been singing, he just had cynicism. He missed out. Instead of worshipping, he just worried. And so how did the angel react to Zechariah's response? I feel like if the angel Gabriel was here in today, he just would have dropped the mic as he walked out with Zechariah because listen to what he says. The angel said to him, "'I am Gabriel. "'I stand in the presence of God, "'and I have been sent to speak to you "'to tell you this good news. "'But now you will be silent "'and not able to speak until the day comes "'because you did not believe my words.'" which will come true at their appointed time. Gabriel saying to Zechariah, I came to bring you good news. And all you said was, how shall I be sure? Where is your singing and dancing at the goodness of God? You did not believe my words. So Zechariah finally comes out of the temple and people wonder why he has been taking so long. And they find out that he has been made mute as the angel said. But the story doesn't end here because Zechariah isn't the only one that the angel Gabriel speaks to. If you continue reading in chapter one of Luke, Gabriel then flies, choofs, I don't know how angels trans- transport themselves, goes over to the town of Nazareth. And there he is going to speak to a virgin who is engaged to a man named Joseph. We all know who that is, Mary. So here the angel appears to Mary and what does he say to her? He says in Luke chapter 1 verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The, God, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He continues on to tell her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel says to Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. So, once again, the angel Gabriel is giving a promise to one of God's people. And Mary herself would have also known the promises stored up in the Israelites' history. She too would have known a Messiah was coming. And now this angel of the Lord has appeared to her as a virgin, not even married, saying, you are going to give birth to this baby boy. You are going to be the one, the mother of the one we've been waiting for, the mother of the Messiah. So how does Mary respond? She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Zechariah did not believe the words that were spoken to him. Mary's response was to believe. May the words you have spoken be fulfilled in me. But her response didn't end there. If you carry on to the same chapter in Luke, in verse 46, Mary breaks out into song She is so overwhelmed by the promise that has been spoken over her that she cannot help but praise and worship her King. Let me read it to you. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. just as he promised our ancestors. That is the reaction that Zechariah should have had. But what's powerful about Mary's song, where she is so overwhelmed by the goodness of God and his fulfillment on his promises, is that she's praising him before the promise has been fulfilled. She's praising him before the miracle has come about. Mary is saying praise to you because you have fulfilled your promises but the baby has not yet been born what's interesting is if you keep reading Zechariah and Elizabeth's story Elizabeth does go on to give birth to the baby Zechariah at that point is still mute until they ask him what the baby's name is going to be and he says I will call, we will call him John and from that moment then his mouth is opened up And Zechariah then goes on to also sing a beautiful hymn of praise to the Lord. But Zechariah praises God when the miracle has already happened. He praises God when the promise has already been fulfilled. It's much easier to praise God when he's already answered our prayer. It's much easier to sing praises when the joy has already come. It's much harder to be merry when we're still waiting on the miracle. We're on this side of God's fulfilment of his promise. And for all of us, that is why we need the certainty. Because we want to respond with praise and worship even before our miracle has come. A few years ago at my old church, we our assistant pastor, uh, he got brain cancer and he died quite quickly. He was in his 50s and he had four children And I remember about a year or two after he had passed away I was back in the area and so I caught up with his wife, beautiful woman named Margie, and she said to me that during around Tim, her husband's death, there were moments where she never thought she would have joy again. She couldn't believe that there would be joy in her life again after the death of her husband and best friend. And she said during those dark days, all she had was God's promises. She said every day I would just repeat God's promises to myself. She said because she knew that she knew that she knew that God's word was true. So even though everything in front of her looked like darkness and that there would not be joy on the other side, she just stood in the certainty of what she knew. She stood in her for lane, the security of knowing that God is so bolted down, locked into her spirit, that even when all she wanted to do was just give up, she couldn't let go of those promises. So every day she would recite themselves to herself Because that's all that she had to stand on. God tells us that he is a rock. And there are times when that rock is all that we will have to stand on. And the storms will come, but we will stand on the rock that is immovable. That is why our faith cannot be clouds, they must be mountains. We must know what we know, what we know to be true. So that when those times come where we can't even see the joy on the other side, we can't even imagine it. We can stand on the promises. Margie said that the joy did come back. It came in spits and spats as she began to heal, but she has a whole plethora of grandchildren and she said her her life is so full and, of course, she still grieves her husband, but she said it was the promises of God that carried me through. Now, when we look at the story of Mary and Zechariah, it can be easy to ask, what has this got to do with me? I don't know about you, but I haven't had any angels appear to me lately. We don't necessarily have words of God coming to us with a bright shining light and being spoken out by an angel in our midst. We may not have the word of God coming from an angel. We do have the word of God. And the question is whether we're going to believe his promises. Because God has spoken his promises over us. I chose a couple of my favourites on the screen. God has told us that he will give us wisdom when we ask for it. He has told us that he will provide a way out of temptation. He has promised us that our salvation is secure no matter what. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised to finish the good work that he began in us. And he has promised to come back God has promised those things. He has made them as mountains that are immovable in our faith. And what's interesting about those promises is that they aren't necessarily promises about our circumstances. They're promises about God himself. Because we won't have certainty about the circumstances we're going to face, but we will have certainty about the God in our circumstances, So we need to remember that God has never broken a promise. He has never failed on his promises. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And that's why it's so powerful because God's promises don't rely on us. They don't depend on us upholding our side of the bargain. God's promises fall onto Jesus. And he upheld every single one of God's promises When he lived on earth, he followed his father all the way to the cross. And he did that so that we would know he would never give up on us. He followed God all the way to death, to nails being pierced into his hands, even though he was the only man on this earth who has been completely innocent. And he did that so that we would know his promises are true. He's not going to give up on me. So I encourage you as you head into this Christmas season, know what you believe. Know the promises of God. Build them up as mountains of faith in your life. So no matter who may question you, no matter what is ahead of you, you can know that you know that you know that it's bolted down, asphalene, locked in, digested so inside of you that you can smile and say, I don't know what's going to come ahead of me. I don't know what the devil's going to say to me. He will try and say to you, Did God really say, just as he did to Adam and Eve? But just like Jesus did in the desert, we can know what we have, and we have God's word and his promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he is working for our good in all things. Christmas is such a powerful time to think about Jesus coming to earth to be born. It's beautiful to see all the nativity scenes, even though as I've been studying this, I think, oh, you don't really have the 90-year-old pregnant Elizabeth in the nativity scene. It would sort of wreck a bit of the vibe. (laughs) And it's lovely to think about Jesus being born. But Jesus was born so that he would die for us. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to read to you something from, this is the Bible that I read my son, it's a children's Bible. And this week as I was reading it to him, I just started weeping, thinking about the reality of what Jesus has done for us. So as we head into this Christmas season, let me read this to you and then I'll pray. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. He could have said a word and made it all stop, like when he healed that little girl or steeled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You say they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. God cut himself off from Jesus so that he would never cut himself off from us. Jesus was abandoned by God so that we would never have to. That's the price that he paid. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, I can't help but give you an opportunity to open up your heart to accept him again, to accept him for the hundredth time or for the first time, to say, I don't know if I can face this life trying to build on my own circumstances. I need something greater than I. I need a faith and a mountain and a God who can walk with me through every storm. So if that's you, I want you to bow your heads with me as we all bow our heads together. And let's pray this prayer and recommit ourselves to the one who paid it all for us. Jesus, thank you for the nails in your hands. If you just want to repeat after me, thank you for the nails in your hands. Thank you that you prayed the price for me. Thank you that you will never break your promise. You will never leave me nor forsake me. This morning, I want to put my trust in you. I want to live for you for the rest of my days. Come and live in me. In Jesus' name, amen.